turn with me, turn with me, please, to that passage. Turn with me, please, to that passage at the end of First Thessalonians chapter five, uh, looking particularly at verses twenty-three and twenty-four. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the gift of your word. Give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to be responsive and receptive. That, Father, we might go from this place not simply better informed, but increasingly transformed by the power of your word and the hands of your Holy Spirit into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Amen. Over the last few weeks, when I've been on holiday, I've been on a few trains, both in, uh, both in England and actually in England, both in London, <laughs> London and in Cornwall. And in some of the stations, I shall be uh, aware, uh, sometimes the gap between the platform and the carriage is bigger than at other times. And you will hear that expression, mind the gap mind the gap. And in fact, one of the trains, I can't remember whether it was Cornwall or the underground in London. I suspect it was Cornwall where they said, if you see someone struggling, please do give them a hand to cross the gap. Mind the gap. Now, when it comes to the Christian faith, there is often uh, a gap. And it's a gap that exists in the lives of genuine Christians. I'm not talking about those whose Christian faith is a Sunday coat to be put on once a week for about an hour and then taken off again. No, I'm speaking about those who love the gospel and who love the Lord Jesus Christ. There is often a gap. And Kevin DeYoung puts it like this. There is a gap between our love for the gospel and our love for godliness. There is a gap between our love for the gospel and our love for godliness. Yes, we believe, accept, and rejoice in the absolute necessity of the gospel. There is no hope of salvation without it, but godliness? We often look at godliness or holiness as something like an optional extra. You know, something for the dedicated few, a bit like wild swimming, which used to be known as swimming, or wild camping, which used to be known as camping. Or Minecraft, or golf, or cross-stitching, or face-painting, or poetry, or hill-walking. We often have the same kind of attitude towards holiness or godliness. You know, these things, whatever some of you might say, these things are not absolutely necessary for life. You can live without wild swimming, or poetry, or hill-walking. You can, honestly. We often have that same kind of attitude towards holiness or godliness. We can take it or leave it. It doesn't really matter. But that's not what the Word of God says. The Bible calls us repeatedly to be holy. God calls us to be holy. In fact, we read in Hebrews 12, verse 14, that we are to make every effort, not just to live at peace with everyone, but make every effort to be holy, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Mind the gap. Better still, close the gap. Get rid of the gap. Beware we, we do not stumble over a gap that should not be there or fall into a hole that should not be there. I quote it from Kevin DeYoung and I, I recommend this book, which when uh, we were able to have a book stall and we will have shortly again, I hope, 
He's written a book called The Hole in Our Holiness. It's an excellent, very readable and very helpful treatment of the whole subject of holiness in the life of the Christian, the whole in our holiness. And de Jong goes on to say, when he talks about this gap between our love of the gospel and our love of godliness, he goes on to say, it's not pietism. What he means by that is, you know, it's not like, you know, we have to hide ourselves away in a monastery and in a cloister and pray all the time in a way in our nose. And he says, it's not pietism. It's not legalism. You must do this and you must not do that. And it's not fundamentalism to take holiness seriously. It's not pietism to shut yourself off from the world. It's not that. That's not what the Bible is calling us to. It's not legalism. It's not fundamentalism to take holiness seriously. It is the way of all those who have been called to a holy calling by a holy God. Now, just to remind you, look back at chapter 4, verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians. Where Paul writes, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. And that word sanctified or sanctify is the verb, the doing word that corresponds to the noun holiness. There is no word holify. And if there there were such a word called holify, it would read, it is God's will that you should be holified. But no, we have the word sanctified. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. You want to know what God's will for your life is? He wants you and me to be holy. He wants you and me to become more like Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. To live a holy life. So if you and I are Christians today, God has called us and chosen us to live a holy life. Uh, Jim Packer has said that holiness is the goal of our redemption. It's not just a byproduct of it. It's not just the proof of our redemption. It is the goal of our redemption. It's why we are saved. Packer goes on, as Christ died in order that we may be justified, that is declared not guilty because of the righteousness of Christ and our faith in Christ, as Christ died that we might be justified, so we are justified in order that we may be sanctified and made holy. We often treat sanctification as a proof of our justification, and so it is, but it is so much more than that. It is the end goal of our justification. And that is why Paul has already prayed in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. It's why Paul gives us the instructions he, and the commands he gives us in verse Chapter 4 and chapter 5, to avoid sexual immorality. Chapter 5, you know about, um, acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord. These are why God gives these commands to us through Paul, his apostle. Because you see, unlike justification in which we play no part, 
You and I play no part in our justification. It's a verdict delivered by the judge of not guilty for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a verdict delivered by God alone on the basis of Christ alone. Unlike justification in which we play no part, sanctification is a work of God in which we do have a part to play. There are sins to be avoided and to be put to death. There are commands to be obeyed. Like the one in Hebrews 12 verse 14, make every effort to be holy. There is the life-giving word of God to feed on. The psalmist calls us to meditate on it day and night, to be like that tree planted by the river, which in its seasons yields its fruit and its leaf fadeth never. There is fruit to be grown. And yet, and here's the thrust of the passage that's before us this morning, yet and yet and yet, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it is God who works in us to work and to act according to his good purpose, to fulfill his good purpose in us, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. We are called to work out what God is working in us. We're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, think about the gym, doing a workout at the gym. You say, James, when did you last do a workout at the gym? Well, I can tell you, I haven't done any since I came to Inverness. So that's quite a few years ago. But we can only work out at the gym if we have muscles that move, if we have blood that pumps oxygen, if we have bones that hold us together, if we have lungs that breathe and a brain that coordinates everything. And we can only work out our salvation as Christians because of all that God has given to us and made us in Christ Jesus. We can only run the race with perseverance because God has called us and equipped us to be runners. And that's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sanctification as the work of God's free grace. The work of God's free grace. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. It is only by grace that we are able to be holy as God is holy. It is only by grace that we can lead and live the holy life to which God has called us. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace by which our whole person Notice how the shorter catechism picks up the language of 1 Thessalonians, spirit, soul, and body. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace by which our whole person is made new in the image of God. And who bore the image of God perfectly but Jesus Christ? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace by which our whole person is made new in the image of God. And we are enabled, we are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. And you see, is this free grace? Interestingly and significantly, the catechism says that sanctification is the work of God's free grace, while justification and adoption are the act of God's free grace. You see the difference, the act, a decisive act, but sanctification is a work, an ongoing work. But it is this free grace, this free and sovereign grace of God, and the sovereign purpose of God, 
Remember Philippians 2 verse 12, working out everything according to his good purpose. It is the free grace of God and the sovereign purpose of God which reassures us as Christians, which gives us confidence as Christians as we face the day of Jesus' return. And it's on that note of comfort and reassurance and confidence that Paul ends his letter as he prays once again for the Thessalonian sanctification. Verse 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Now very briefly, just in the uh, remainder of our time, in case you think I'm just beginning my sermon now, I'm going to look at three headings here. The ground of Paul's prayer, the goal of Paul's prayer, and the horizon of Paul's prayer. Firstly, the ground of Paul's prayer. Secondly, the goal of Paul's prayer. And thirdly, the horizon of Paul's prayer. So the ground of Paul's prayer. As some of you know, uh, Katie and Callum and Jane and I were back in Northern Ireland until uh, yesterday and uh, staying near the beach. And uh, one of the things that we, well, particularly Callum, I think, and I like to do, Callum especially, to build sand castles and to build not just, not just a small sand castle, but a big one with a moat and a tunnel. And uh, like to build it quite near the water's edge. But of course, as soon as the tide comes in and the moat fills, the bridge will collapse and you come down the next morning and where there was a castle before, there's a, maybe sometimes if you're lucky, there's a slight mound in the sand and nothing else. It's so important if you're going to build something that lasts to build on solid ground. Isn't that right? Not the sand. So what is the ground that Paul is praying on? Well, the ground of Paul's prayer is none other than God himself. And can there be any more solid ground than God himself, unchanging, unmovable, the God of peace, the God who is faithful and who will do it? Calvin says, I'm not quite clear why he calls God here the God of peace. So just in case you think Calvin had the answer to everything, here he says, I'm not sure why Paul calls God here the God of peace. But Paul often ends his letters to the churches with a reference to the God of peace. He draws it in 2 Thessalonians 3 and 2 Corinthians 13 and Romans 16 verse 20. And he sometimes begins his letter with peace as well, the greeting grace and peace. For what is the gospel? The gospel at his heart is a message of peace, is it not? Is it not the message that God has sent his son Jesus Christ to make peace for us with himself through Christ the Prince of Peace? It is this God of peace who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Who's called us to himself in Christ and who's called us to holiness in Christ. And Paul says in verse 24 that the, this God, this one who has chosen you and called you is faithful and he will do it. He will do it. He will sanctify you through and through. He will keep your whole soul, spirit and body blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is faithful and he will do it. You will know that the sports company Nike, sometimes the children call it Nike, but I hear that, but it's Nike, isn't it? Shouldn't it be Nike? 
The slogan is, what is it? Just do it. Just do it. Which sounds very different, doesn't it, to, uh, to us in the West. That sounds like a, a, an exhortation, just go on and live your life. But if you're making a Nike product in the Far East, it has a different kind of ring to it. Just do it. God doesn't say just do it. God says, I will do it. I will do it. You are able to do it, to be sanctified, to be kept blameless because I am faithful and I will do it. I will do it. The ground of Paul's prayer. Here's solid ground. For God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Does God speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? Numbers 23 verse 19. Of course not. God is not like us who at times promise carelessly and then forget our promises. So we as Christians, we can be confident, we can be assured, we can be comforted that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1 verse 6. God is a completer finisher. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. That is the ground of Paul's prayer, the solid ground of the faithfulness of the God of peace. Well then secondly, what is the goal of Paul's prayer? What is the goal of Paul's prayer? Uh, On Friday night, a good number of my extended family were together for a barbecue at uh, one of my sister's house in in Northern Ireland. Uh, I think there were about 30 of us there um, from great-grannies down to great-grandchildren and nieces and great-nieces and nephews. And the thing about a barbecue, of course, it's important that your meat is cooked through, (laughs) that it's not just glazed on the surface. Um, And as as somebody who used to work in infectious diseases, often we would see people with food poisoning who had eaten something that wasn't completely cooked. In fact, I remember uh, an outbreak of food poisoning that happened from a kebab shop And it was interesting because it only happened for those who came after a certain time in the night. And those who were there before weren't sick. But what had happened was it was either a, I think it was a football match or maybe the pubs closing. So when the pubs closed and the football match was over and all the crowds came into the kebab shop, instead of giving the kebab time to cook, they were serving all these people. So they were cutting off slices of uncooked meat. And that led to the outbreak of food poisoning. God wants us to be holy, cooked, as it were, all the way through as Christians. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word that's translated through and through is is one of these words that brings two words together. You can ask Swanee about how the German language loves to do that. I bring words together to make a new word. Through and through, it has the idea of being through everything, but also through to the end. In other words, holiness has to do with the whole of life and the whole of our lives. Do you see that? The whole of life and the whole of our lives, through and through. God's desire for us and what Paul's prays for us is that we should be sanctified completely, that we would be sanctified completely all the way through and all the way through to the end. And that is the goal of Paul's prayer. 
grounded on the God who has called us, who is faithful and who will do it. Let me just expand that a little bit, take a moment or two to apply that. Kevin DeYoung in this book has written a, what he calls the anatomy of holiness. He uses the image of the, the body as a metaphor, as a picture for how holiness it touches every part of our lives that we might be sanctified through and through. The mind is filled with the knowledge of God and fixed on what is good. The eyes turn away from sensuality and shudder at the sight of evil. The mouth tells the truth and refuses to gossip, slander, or speak what is coarse or obscene. The spirit is earnest, steadfast, and gentle. The heart is full of joy instead of hopelessness, patience instead of irritability, kindness instead of anger, humility instead of pride, and thankfulness instead of envy. The sexual organs are pure, being reserved for the privacy of marriage between one man and one woman. The feet move towards the lowly and away from senseless conflict, divisions, and wild parties. The hands are quick to help those in need and ready to fold in prayer. This is the anatomy of holiness. And whatever lies before you this week, tomorrow, whether it's those going back to school or those going back to the week, that's very like the week that was before, we are called to take this anatomy of holiness with us to take the Spirit of Christ and the work of Christ in us, which is what Paul prays for the Christians in Thessalonia, Thessalonica. This is the goal of God's prayer, of Paul's prayer, grounded on the God who has called us, who is faithful and who will do it. Then thirdly and lastly, the horizon of Paul's prayer. What is on your horizon as you pray? You might say, what's the bedroom wall? Or maybe it's the bed itself, if you pray, kneeling at the side of your bed. But you know what I'm saying? What is on your horizon as you pray? What do you see as you pray to God? One more story from Northern Ireland. <laughs> on the beach when it was raining, we were in the sea, so it didn't matter. And then the sun came out and there was a glorious rainbow, a full arc double rainbow over the beach. One end ending on the beach, actually, and over the other part of the coast, along the north coast of Antrim. A reminder, of course, of God's covenant of mercy and love. But what is on Paul's horizon as he prays? He sees the return and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's own Son. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, end of verse 23. The one whom God raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath, chapter 1, verse 10. Jesus, the Lord himself, will one day come down from heaven and with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, chapter 4, verse 16. All through this letter, Paul has brought us back or directed our attention to the horizon, to the, the sure and certain fact that Christ Jesus will one day return to judge the living and the dead. Paul sees on the horizon the dawning of a new day. The first rays of light have already broken through in the resurrection of Jesus. But he sees that day 
when the Son of Righteousness will return in all his blazing glory. And it's this reality of Christ's return, which is why Paul prays as he does. And this is why we seldom pray as Paul does. For we see, we seldom see further than what is in front of our noses. You think about it. Here is a young church suffering persecution and opposition for the sake of the gospel. We've seen that in the previous chapters of this letter. And how does Paul end his letter? What does he pray for them as he ends his letter? He ends his letter by praying not for an end to their suffering and persecution, but that they would be ready to meet Jesus. That they would have confidence that God will ensure they will be ready to meet Jesus. You see, Paul's horizon stretched beyond this world to the world to come. The world where Jesus reigns in glory and his enemies are defeated. The world where there is no sin and there is no room for sin. It's the home of righteousness where righteousness dwells. That's how Peter describes the the new heavens and the new earth. A place where every sinner who is there is a sinner who is justified and sanctified by the free grace of God. How small our horizons are and how small our prayers are for ourselves and for each other. Oh yes, we are to cast all our cares upon the Lord. Of course we are. All our material, all our physical concerns, all our worries about the here and now and the future. But, but have we got our priorities right in prayer? when we see how Paul prays for the churches that he founded and even for those he didn't found. We, brothers and sisters, we need a fresh vision of Jesus, a fresh vision of his glory, a fresh vision of his return and the new heavens and earth, which will be the home of holiness, the home of holiness. We need a fresh vision of God's good and glorious purposes for us and each other that we become more like Jesus. So help us, Father, we pray. Help us to lift our eyes to you whose throne is in heaven, to the God of peace, that you may sanctify us through and through so that our whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to get rid of the gap between our love for the gospel and our love for godliness. And Father, thank you that you, the one who calls us, you are faithful and you will do it. Amen. Let's pray.